Hi, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, I wonder if you can start by telling me how you got to become interested in this issue of, I suppose, gender, gender identity, but, you know, more specifically the transitioning of young women and girls. Okay, so I actually wasn't. I had already submitted a proposal to my agent, which he liked, um, about a feminist book about sort of a contemporary feminist update, how girls were doing and and what they needed to do and, you know, how, how were they doing and sort of what, you know, what we could learn about that and w- how should they be doing and that sort of thing. Um, and um, and then I wrote a piece, uh, you know, I... I, I I, I sort of wanted to avoid the trans issue. I started out, I wrote a piece on the, um, I'm a lawyer and I wrote a piece about the um, pronoun laws. We have pronoun laws in two States that say you can have criminal pen- assigned pr- criminal pen- penalties for misgendering someone. And that's, that's totally unconstitutional in America. Um, we have really strong first amendment, as you know, and um, the government can't make people say anything. It doesn't, doesn't matter why they can't even make the government can't even make people salute a flag. So I pointed that out and a woman wrote to me and she told me about basically ROGD. She said, this is a real phenomenon. My daughter was caught up in it. She was always a girly girl, had girl, she had boyfriends, actually. She, her, her daughter happened to be uh, straight, but she had had boyfriends, went off to college. She had a lot of mental health problems, but she went off to college and with a group of friends, they all decided they were trans. Um, the girl had always had trouble fitting in and whatnot. And and they all decided they were trans and she started testosterone. And the woman told me this is happening across the country. And I didn't know what to make of it, but um, I I sort of looked into it and I wrote a piece about it for the wall street journal thinking, all right, I'll write one piece on this. And that's it. I I certainly don't want to make, you know, enemies for a living. And um, it it got a lot of, a lot of response. And my agent got back to me and he sort of said, well, if you're going to write about how young girls are doing, don't you think you should write about this? Um, and it really did seem to sort of mesh with how girls were doing. It was hard not to talk about the fact that so many girls were trying to escape womanhood. Um, I didn't know how to write a book about girls without talking about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because I mean, I actually, I have uh, a manuscript unpublished that I started writing three, maybe four years ago. And it was supposed to be about, you know, it, well, it is about modern feminism and like how third wave feminism has really kind of destroyed the women's movement as far as I'm concerned. Um, And how things like social media and porn culture and sexualization and so on and so forth have been, you know, have really confused young women and girls in particular. And, you know, of course, since then, the trans issue has really blown up, which which I think is really connected to this, I don't know, change in focus in terms of the feminist movement, I guess you could say. I Like, how would you, do you think that's accurate? How would you sort of describe that connection? Totally. I mean, look at, you know, the the you know the union of american rugby players that just decided to bring in um trans you know so-called trans women so biological men um to play play that sport but by, by the way i always clarify that biological men not because i i mean to be mean or mean or insulting to people who consider themselves trans women but because you know they 
uh, people don't understand what you mean by a trans woman half the time. So for readers and listeners, it's very hard. Wait, wait, trans woman, what is that again? You know, they're always playing that game. But anyway, biological men competing with women, they just voted to allow that. These girls are going to get so hurt. And you think about the number of the girls on the team who didn't want that but couldn't speak up because they didn't want to be considered a bigot. I mean, it's just so predictable. How And these girls could be terribly hurt. Rugby's a very, you know, violent sport. I mean, these girls are throwing away, you know, women in general are throwing away the rights that we've won with both hands. And it's worth asking what in God's name is going on. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think, why do you think that there is this sort of, I mean, I would call it like a lack of concern for not just like women's sex-based rights as a whole, but, you know, a real lack of concern for girls and girls' well-being and girls' safety. Okay, so I think a lot a lot of things came together at once. Um, w- one thing was that there was a big switch from what I'm, I was born in 1978. And when I was growing up, we had women's history in month. It was all about girl empowerment and looking up to these strong women. And, and that's what we did. And, and somehow in the last generation that certainly switched and women became yet another victim status. Um, they became, you know, described as weak. They're always going to get raped at school, abused in the workplace, given less pay. And this was just a constant drumbeat that being a woman wasn't that great a thing to be. Um, we, we never heard that when I was a kid. You never heard that being a woman wasn't a great thing to be. We thought it was the best thing to be. Um, and, and then you had the idea of gender nonconforming, which is very insidious because the idea is, oh, I'm not conforming to being a woman because I'm so smart in math. Well, what you're saying is being a woman means being bad in math. I mean, that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So there were all these really negative messages. You know, at, at the same time, you had this new group asking for rights, you know, claiming it was the next civil rights frontier. Um, and it was really hard to deny them that and, and to recognize that what they were really asking for in, in many cases, certainly the activists was a destruction of women's rights. Women's rights mean excluding men. That's what those rights mean. Yeah. And, and of course, when we're talking about women's spaces or spaces for girls, it also means excluding men. So now that we have this whole language around exclusion that is inherently and always a bad thing it's really difficult to talk about you know why like actually exclusion isn't inherently bad sometimes exclusion is necessary or sometimes it just makes sense sometimes it's fine and it's neutral I mean it doesn't make sense for everybody to be included in everything all the time that's totally right. We lost the ability to say that. We became so Manichaean. Everything was all good or all bad. And exclusion was always bad, which of course doesn't make any sense. You know what? There's something else too. And, and you might totally disagree with this, but I, I think it's worth putting out there. I get a lot of notes. You know, I've written about women's sports, you know, many times. And when I do, I often get notes from fathers, fathers who think it's desperately unfair to their daughters. They are very concerned. I do think that, and I think women are in part to blame for this. Men are so afraid to be mansplaining. They're so afraid to be what used to be considered chivalry and then became sexist that they're right now don't feel like they're in a space to stand up for their daughters. So I think a lot of times you'll see online, why aren't women, men standing up? And I do think the response to that is because they think they're not allowed to. They're going to be called mansplainers if they do. 
Yeah, I I think you're you're right in some ways. And you know, and this is something that I think that I participated in when I was younger, you know, when I was first writing about I mean, you know, people change, people mature, whatever. Like I'm not I'm not embarrassed to say that there's things that I've written in the past that I wouldn't write today, you know. Um and and especially when you're sort of being trained in engagement online, um, I think people sort of just, you know, you learn what works and you learn what you're supposed to say and you sort of just knee jerk into all these things without necessarily thinking through whether those are worthwhile or make sense or productive or whatever. But yeah, I think you're right because a, a lot of feminists have done this thing, which is like, sit down and shut up. Like you're a right. man you don't have a say, like, what are you doing in this conversation? Like, go be quiet and read a book, you know, like, or just support us no matter what, like anything we say, you have to go along with and agree with. And that was a really big mistake. Because now, as you pointed out, we've come to this, you know, trans trend. And men think, oh, I have to support this because this is what the feminists are telling me to do. Because, of course, there are a lot of people who identify as feminists who say, you know, trans women are the most oppressed people in the world. And, like, anyone who challenges this ideology is a bigot and hateful and exclusionary, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I I actually, it would be very confusing as a man to be like, what is what is feminism? Like, what am I supposed to be doing as an ally, which is supposed to be what I I am as a man? Like, maybe I'll just say nothing at all. Or maybe I'll just like click like on this post that says trans women are women. End of conversation. Yeah, I think I, I, I do think that's right. We've gotten so obsessed with identity and we can't even make cause on issues that are really important. So I see this a lot because, you know, a lot of people who write to me are politically progressive and they're very uncomfortable ever joining forces, some of them, with someone on the right. And they mm-hmm. say, well, I don't want to, you know, basically I won't stand up for women's rights if I have to agree with that person. And I think I think we're all kind of guilty of this. We become so obsessed with these labels that, that it's more important than, than our objectives, you know, our, some of our policy objectives, but also just what's right. It's It's really wrong to bring men, biological men into women's prisons. If that's not cruel and unusual punishment for those female prisoners, I don't know what is. And so I don't care who you are. If you're willing to say that, I think there's some, you know, across the aisle, we ought to be able to make common cause, you know, politics aside. And, And sometimes, you know, people are reluctant to do that. Yeah. And I mean, and those categories become really silly when you're talking about them in terms of like, oh, well, you said a thing that sounds like what this right wing person said. Therefore, like, oh, you and Tucker Carlson agreed on something. Therefore, you're Tucker Carlson. (laughs) You know, like you're signing on to all of his politics and beliefs. And I mean, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, I agree with a wide variety of people and a wide variety of things and probably disagree with them on other things. And, you know, we're for whatever reason, we're so desperate to put people in these very rigid categories and then either include them on our team or kick them off our team. And it's, it's super divisive and yeah, it's super unproductive, especially when we're talking about, you know, fundamental women's rights, protecting kids, protecting girls. It's like, well, why, 
why can't I agree with this person or work with this person on this one issue and also disagree with them on, you know, like abortion or whatever it is. Like it, it's just, you're never, and who, who thinks that they're going to find people who they agree with on everything. <laughs> right. And I think what you're describing is the experience of being online. So when yeah. you say, you know, the identity is all that matters and everybody's either in your group or out of your group, well, that's what social media allows. Everyone mm -hmm. is either in your friend group or out of your friend group. Everybody is either some tag or not that tag, right? And unfortunately, you know, this younger generation growing up, they don't, they don't know that life's not supposed to be like that, that you have you know, annoying neighbors who are nevertheless good and decent and can be of help, even if you agree with them on nothing. And mm -hmm. there are like grandparents who say the wrong thing, but are still worthy to be in your life. Like they, they really just don't seem to know that. And it's, it's just such a loss. It's a loss of the human experience, you know, and the pleasure of each other to know that, you know, God, we're not all perfect, you know, and, and we're all kind of annoying and we all have dumb ideas about things and that's okay, you know, yeah. like, and sometimes we change our minds and you we know, change, like. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we change our minds. I mean, it's just, it's just sad to me because, you know, the number of people I might, I don't, I'm fr very close to, but I don't agree with on this or that. I mean, the thought that I would lose their friendship over that, over, you know, those d disagreements is so sad to me. And I, and yet I think that's what the younger generation is doing. I think so too. Um, so I want to talk to you about your book, obviously. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder, so when you, when you first started researching this phenomenon, um, I guess of girls wanting to transition to be boys or to be males, um, what, I mean, what did you find? What did you come across? What kind of data did you discover? What was happening that made you feel like, okay, I have to write a book on this? Well, Lisa Lippman's research, of course, it was so important. I thought I was very compelled, not only by her research, but by her as a, as a woman. I mean, I, I think she's a scientist with amazing integrity. Um, I just, I think, you know, look, there, there are things I'm good at, the things I'm not. And I think I'm a pretty good judge of people and a judge of character. And I was just immediately thought, wow, she's an impressive person and a person whose work I really want to know. And I, I think is worth taking very, very seriously. And she just looked at these, these girls and she saw a pattern. That was it. That's, that's a job of scientists to investigate patterns they see to see if they're right or what the pattern might mean. And the amount of, and so I just sort of followed that trail and the more people I talked to, the more that the people I, I really came to really admire believed her work was very, very good. And, and the ones who weren't making any sense to me were all seemed to be on the other side. The ones who would immediately discount it or immediately label it transphobic, they, they didn't seem willing to, to really push and, and give me a, you know, an interesting perspective. And, and that's not to say that everyone I interviewed agreed, even even the ones I admire. I mean, they had minor disagreements with them. I mean, not minor, but they had big disagreements within them. But at least they were willing to engage and take seriously her hypothesis. And I couldn't believe how many people weren't. Mm -hmm. And so what was what was the trend? Like, what was it that... It was all the same story. 
It was like yeah. the same story over and over. And by the time I wrote the piece in the Wall Street Journal, I was getting so many dozens of parents contacted me. I guess I fully interviewed a little less than five dozen before the book came out, but I, I was in touch with so many more. And it was always the same story of a precocious young girl who had had no history of gender dysphoria. She had never gone around saying, very often she wasn't even a tomboy. And then this awkward, precocious girl hits adolescence and all of a sudden she has trouble making friends and she discovers on the internet these trans influencers and she sees it as a gateway to popularity. And for the first time she's celebrated and it, and she doesn't want to let go. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, what, what kind of stats are we looking at? I mean, I don't know what stats, you know, you know what, how many girls are, transitioning today versus 10 years ago? So, you know, between 2016 and 2017, the number of uh, trans uh, gender surgeries on biological women in the United States quadrupled. So we're seeing very, very high numbers. They're saying that, you know, in 2018, 2% of high school students identified as trans and something came out today in Politico to suggest one in four are now, um, identifying as, you know, trans or queer or something. These are numbers that don't make any sense in human history. And, and what's important to note, people always say, oh, there's more acceptance. Well, it's important to note, you're not seeing women in their 40s and 60s coming out with greater acceptance. You're just seeing teenage girls, the same population that gets involved in every other hysteria. So you have to ask, are they being influenced by each other? I mean, girls influence each other. You know, teenagers influence each other. And it, and it's at least worth exploring that possibility. And, and that's all I sought to do in the book. Right. And so and you, you said um, the same population that sort of gets caught up in these other hysterias. I mean, what sort of similar hysterias have you come across that you could compare to this, this trend of girls identifying as trans? Well, multiple personality disorder is one because these, these were young women in, in a lot of pain who completely mis, misunderstood the symptoms. I mean, sort of misunderstood the diagnosis. They latched onto this diagnosis they had heard about, this phony ailment, but they convinced themselves they had it. Um, and they, and of course, in conjunction with a lot of therapists, um, were led down this path that didn't do anyone very much good. But also, of course, anorexia, bulimia, cutting are big ones. Um, and, you know, it's so funny, you know, even the word hysteria bothers people because it suggests that all women, right, are crazy, you know, in their seat of craziness exists in their uterus or something like that. But of course, you don't have to see it as a negative aspect of womanhood that they take on each other's pain. We know that women become very close. It's why women become so close to their girlfriends. And that's so good for them. It's just that sometimes if the, one of the girls is going down a wrong path, Young women have to know, listen, you can be close to your girlfriend, but don't jo- you don't have to take on all her pain. You don't have to take on her all her bad, you know, be- behaviors or her bad beliefs about herself. Mm-hmm. And if we're aware of that, it doesn't have to be, you know, s- sort of it doesn't have to be cloaked in shame. It could just be something that young women are told about. Mm-hmm. And that comparison to anorexia, I've heard, you know, I've heard people talk about that in a number of different ways. Um one of those ways, of course, is as you've discussed, like that it's a 
trend and so girls do it and then their friends do it and then everybody's doing it but then you know also ha- having listened to myself also to detransitioners and read their stories it seems that there's also this common thread of you know them having you know what some might call gender dysphoria but also struggling with uh eating disorders yeah i i think that's right i mean look you know, I once had a friend in, in college, he, it was a guy who used to comment on women's weight a lot. He would comment on women's appearance and it, it really bothered me, but it also, I started to realize that it made me really self-conscious. So it wasn't just that he was commenting on other girls, but it was making me self-conscious about my own weight. And I, and I finally told him like, you have to stop this. It's making me crazy. I know it's a joke to you, like knock it off. And it's so funny because that's what we do online, right? That's what young girls do online. They see constant, constant comments about other girls' bodies and other women's bodies. And so they're obsessing about their own naturally. I mean, that's that's what it will do. It makes you very un- self-conscious. So I, I do think there's a real tie-in with anorexia. Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, the, even the competition, you know, girls, you know, start to have Lisa Littman talked about this in her research, they start to, com, you know, compete who can lose the most weight. And certainly you see that in the, in the trans world online with a competition over who, who can, who can come this close to passing or who's the most hardcore about their testosterone shots and that sort of thing. Mm, right. Yeah. And I mean, the other aspect of anorexia is that you you can end up delaying puberty and you can end up, you know, preventing your female body from developing properly by starving yourself, which is of course sort of similar to what these girls are trying to do with the the puberty blockers and testosterone and things like that. That's a great point. I never thought of that, but that's a, it's a great point. I mean, it's hard not to see testosterone as a cure for female puberty to some extent, because not only does it suppress anxiety, you know, depression, which is what these girls are self-medicating for, um, but it makes you bolder, um, you know, in a time when girls are naturally awkward. But there's something else, too. It it suppresses tears. You don't cry as easily. Well, you know, Kira Bell talked about that in her, you know, in her lawsuit in the, in the, in the times. I mean, you know, that's, that's a huge problem for girls. They're crying all the time in adolescence. A lot of them, especially if they're struggling with mental health issues. And it's like they start testosterone and it's the tears dry up and they think, Oh my God, I really am trans. I feel so much better now. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm I'm interested in talking to you about what happens when girls start taking testosterone physically, but I actually wasn't aware that there were like personality changes and behavioral changes. Um, uh, how does that work? <laughs> they they get a boy's swagger. Huh. That that's what they do. They get they feel bolder. They get that swagger. That's testosterone. I mean, they walk all of a sudden, instead of walking into a party like this, they're, you know, strutting into a party and feeling great. Everyone's telling them they look great because they're coming across as a young boy. What what they don't realize, of course, is that, you know, a lot of women go through those awkward adolescences and they will get there, you know, eventually. But everybody wants it right now. Yeah. And and female puberty in adolescence takes a while. It's an emotional struggle. And some people have a harder time with it than others. But but there's no sort short circuiting it. There's no quick fix for it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean, what a lot of these girls are experiencing is just like totally, they're totally normal experiences that girls have when they're going through puberty. Like, I also did not want to get my period ever and was really upset when it came. And if, maybe if somebody had offered me a solution back then, um, I would have been like, great, yeah, I'll, I'll postpone this as long as possible, like without having any real idea what the consequences were of that. Um, I guess I, I wonder what you learned about how schools are participating in this trend of, of transitioning specifically, you know, girls. So, um, you know, I interviewed a lot of people for the book and most of them, I actually gained a lot of sympathy for and a lot more understanding for. And the one exception, I, I gained a lot more understanding of the schools, but I was much, much more alarmed by them than when I went in. Um, that was the that was pretty much the biggest ex- ex- example of that. Mo- most times, I actually, you know, I interviewed influencers and I trans influencers, and I get a lot more understanding and 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 uh, honestly, a lot more sympathy for them. Sorry, but that wasn't true of the uh, uh, of the schools. And the reason was, as I couldn't believe how aggressively, even in middle school, elementary school, they were participating in keeping things from parents concealing things from parents. They had this complex of saving children from their parents, from the allegedly unsafe home that they were going back to. Mm -hmm. Um, I I talked to a lot, a lot of parents. I didn't talk to one who cut off their children, their transgender child, but I talked to a lot who were cut off by children who decided their parents weren't safe or supportive or allies. And these parents were desperate to get back in touch. And that was much more the norm. Mm-hmm. What's the process now in terms of, so a girl, let's say, I don't know, she's 14 years old. Um, she decides that she must be transgender. She wants to be a boy. She, you know, maybe she announces this to somebody at school. Um, what happens next? So one interesting thing that I noticed from when I started the project is that the age is getting younger and younger because they're pushing this in the school system so aggressively. And, and of course, puberty is coming earlier. And so these girls, so now when the girl, when that girl first makes the announcement, now it looks like I I hear it more and more. It's 12. It's not 14. When I started it, it was, it was high school where they were first doing this. Now it's certainly middle school. You see huge numbers in middle school. And what they do is they say they come out as trans and the parent doesn't take it seriously. And they say, "Okay, honey, whatever, you know, whatever you say, if you want me to call you the pronouns or whatever you want, they sort of go along for a while. Maybe she maybe she comes out first as pansexual or maybe she's gay. And the mom says, "Okay, that's great. You're experimenting. You'll find yourself, you know, maybe maybe you are gay. That's wonderful. I accept you. But but the girl is often very, very sheltered. And actually, she doesn't know she's gay. She's never out of mom's sight. She doesn't really know much about herself sexually at all. And in fact, she's rarely alone with other girls or boys. She's never had a kiss. Um, and, and she really lives mostly online. And, and so then this starts escalating because the moment you go online and declare an identity, you are celebrated by so many people, your school, but also adults. Uh, they will reach out to you to tell you how brave you are. Mm-hmm. And what's the process in terms of getting on puberty blockers? Like how easy 
is it to access puberty blockers in the U.S.? That's a good question. Um, I don't know as much about that because the girls I talk to usually are, are out of the first, you know, the parents of the girls I talk to are usually out of the first two Tanner stages. So they're already far enough along that what they want is testosterone. They've gone mm. through puberty. Mm-hmm. They've had their periods. Puberty blockers is usually before they've even gotten their periods. Um, so, um, so it's a little bit younger and usually there that involves parental involvement Although the disturbing thing is in the United States, it's very often requires a child assent to the just a child acknowledgement that they're forfeiting their future fertility. And and the idea that that children are allowed to assent to that at, at such young ages is just it's really astonishing. Mm-hmm. And OK, so what about testosterone? How easy is it to get testosterone? So easy. <laughs> um, so in Oregon, you know, you only have to be 15. You can walk into a clinic and walk out without your parents' permission. It seems to be getting easier and easier. Um, I don't, I haven't heard of it confirmed that it's allowable in Washington state at 13, but they are allowed to met, to avail themselves now of mental health services at 13. So presumably that could include a um, referral for, um, you know, testosterone. They're allowed to do that with, sorry, without parental permission. Um, but, but in Oregon, I know it's 15. Mm. And, how does testosterone impact the female body, especially when they're you know still developing? Right. So a few ways. First of all, it's a massive dose. It's forty times what a young woman's body would normally handle. And the long and and the the real truest answer is I give I can give you is we don't know. We've never. This is a massive experiment, and all the ramifications are things that are just going to unfold. But we have some idea of the risks. And, one, and some of the risks are um, endometrial cancer, vaginal atrophy, uterine atrophy. Um, because of those atrophies, um, hysterectomy is often recommended within the first, you know, if you've been on testo- testosterone for five years, we know that the risk of, of heart, heart attack goes way up. We know that facial hair may never go away and it comes on right away, that the voice doesn't seem to go away, the voice change. Um, and there's changes to the facial features, which do seem to be permanent, though, Though, again, this is all still very new. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the private anatomy. It, it, you know, there's clitoral enlargement. It doesn't seem to go away. Right. I mean, I just, I always find it so frustrating that <clears throat> people act like it's no big deal. Like, people tell me all the time, like, oh, this isn't permanent. Like, it's like, you just, you just go on puberty blockers just to, you know, give yourself some time to decide there's no permanent impacts. It's fine. You just go off them. No big deal. And same thing with the hormones. It's like, well, you can, you know, just go off testosterone. And I don't know why, why they believe that that there's no permanent impacts. It's astonishing. People who will insist on hormone-free beef will give their children hormones, right? Of the opposite sex. It's shocking, right? So they won't eat anything that's been, you know, stuffed full of hormones, but they insist that you try it on their daughter. It's, it's really bizarre. I mean, look, with puberty blockers, we know that it affects bone development. We know that hormones would not, that would naturally shower the brain are not allowed to do that. So we know that there will be massive effects. We just don't know, you know, it's, it's just going to be a while before we know exactly how bad they will be. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I am, I'm, I mean, I want us to know, but at the same time, I'm not looking forward to finding out because I feel really heartbroken for all these kids who are going to 
you know, they've, they've ruined their bodies for life. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see the parents too, because so many times they tried to stop it. They tried so hard and instead the state came in and took the child away or, you know, they were undermined in so many ways by therapists who promised them they wouldn't start, you know, pushing the daughter down this path. And then they overheard a conversation and the therapist was or doctors who prescribed things that the parents did not want that tried to block and did not go along with it. I mean, you know, look, I, I'm a parent and I would just say that as it's, it's bad for these, it's, there's no question it's a lot for these girls to go through, but a lot of them will detransition and they'll, they'll be okay. But the parents' heartbreak doesn't seem to, that, that seems really raw because, you know, it's, it's their kid. They, mm -hmm. they want, you know, it's like their whole world. Yeah. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's not even just the the permanent impacts of hormones and and surgeries which we can also talk about in a bit but you know even binders i guess have have negative physical impacts i wonder if you can talk a bit about that sure they squash your breasts they deform breast tissue perhaps permanently they can cause rib cracking shortness of breath all kinds of really nasty things and then you 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 know i you ask a parent, you know, parents will say to me sometimes, they'll call me and they want advice or something. And I always refer them to a psychologist because I'm not a psychologist. I don't play psychologist. But sometimes they'll say, you know, please, I still want to know what can I do? And I will say, why don't you take away her binder? She's 14. Take it away. And they'll say to me, oh, I can't do that. And I would say, well, would you let her smoke in the house? Can she smoke cigarettes? Because that's bad for her, but you have no problem prohibiting that. Mm -hmm. You know, these parents feel like they're, they want to be allies. They want to be good guys. And they're, they're, they're not even sure. Are they allowed to say no to that? Um, parents have been so undermined and they're really not trusting their own judgment about what seems to be very, very wrong for their daughters. Mm -hmm. And how young are the girls who are starting to get, you know, mastectomies, for example, so for sure, 16, they can do it without parental permission. Of course, with parental permission, they can do it much younger. Obviously, in California, there have been cases where uh, girls at 13 have done it. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it, it depends, but it's young and it seems to be getting younger. I don't I don't see this. People ask me, is this trend abating? I, I think it's it's really just getting going. Um, that's disturbing. I, did you talk to any of the surgeons who were doing these kinds of procedures? Yeah, I did. I yeah. did. I interviewed a few surgeons. Um, one I included, I really profiled in the book, but I interviewed a few. Um, so um, um, anyway, yes. And they, they would tell me, you know, the patients are very happy. I'm supportive of trans rights. I'm giving them what these young people want, you know, and, and this may be to some extent a male female thing. I don't know. Uh, probably not because there've been doctors who were not like this, but I, I can't believe how callous some people are about removing a young girl's healthy breasts as if it's nothing. Um, even doctors, I just, I, it's just astonishing as if there's, you know, nothing of importance there. I mean, that's a, it's a major, it's a major surgery and it's a major loss. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, are there surgeons that are concerned about all this, like yeah. in an ethical sense? A- absolutely. And I interviewed them in my book as well. And I learned a lot from them. And one of the things I learned, they were kind enough to explain to me. And one sur- surgeon um, ex- really took me through this. And um, I believe it was Patrick Lappert, Dr. Patrick Lappert, who really took me through this. And he explained, you know, the breast is a complex organ. It's not just the idea that you can just take off a breast and put it back on with implants. He said the loss is huge. And he explained how the breast structure works, the lobes it's made up of and the, you know, you know, the the capacity, not only for milk and ducts, but also, you know, erotic potential and all these things. It's a complex organ. This is not nothing to lose. And, and the idea that you can just, you know, take it away, no problem. And if you ever want them later, you can get them back. It's really a monstrously, you know, you know, untrue suggestion. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole idea that a child, a teenager can make a decision about something that will, will lead to sterilization will possibly lead to, you know, adult women who can't achieve orgasm and can't enjoy sex like i i don't you know i if an adult wants to have these surgeries wants to take hormones then that's their prerogative um i definitely think that we should be having more conversations about the um health implications of all this transitioning stuff um and obviously there's many other conversations to be had but you know an adult has the right to get cosmetic surgeries, you know, if they want to take these hormones. I'm not out there trying to stop them. But I don't think that any any minor, you know, so I suppose anybody under voting age should be allowed to make these decisions. Like, that's crazy to me. Like, you're not equipped to make these kinds of decisions about your entire life when you're like 14, 15, 16 years old. And the parents who are going along with it for minor children, like the puberty blockers, are sometimes, in some instances, remarkably incurious about things like what's going to happen to their capacity for orgasm. And there's a real chance it may eliminate it. And, you know, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, oh, my, my kid can always adopt later. Who cares? You know, I, I understand that's a loss, but they can always adopt kids. But to go through a life with a very limited sexual, where sex is, is really not that appealing to you. That's a, that's a big, that's a really different life. Um, it's a huge loss. I mean, I, I, you know, how you just give that up for your, sign that away for your child. Um, it's, it's, it's really concerning. Yeah. Yeah. It is a major loss and it seems like nobody's really talking about it or thinking about it or very few of us are in any case. Um, I wonder if you found that, you know, people will say that it's important for some kids, some teenagers to transition when they're young because this is what will improve their mental health. You know, like, first of all, they'll say, you know, well, if they wait until they're adults, it'll be too late, you know, because they'll already have started developing um, as a woman, as a man in ways they don't want to be developing if when they're identifying as the opposite sex or gender, however you want to say it. But, um, they'll also, yeah, they'll also say that like it's, this is, this is in their best interest. I, you know, what, what kind of 
evidence did you find around that claim? I'm so glad you said that. Okay, two things. One, the suicide rates, there's no proof that mental health is improved by transition, certainly not with this population. But there's another thing, and I love that you brought that up. What you often hear is this argument for puberty blockers. Adult transgender people will claim that they wish they had never gone through male puberty because now they have a five o'clock shadow and whatnot and can never really present as a woman. Therefore, we should we should sort of intervene earlier. The problem is what we've done is we've taken a man's a, a full adult man's perspective to guide the treatment that we're giving to these young girls. See that girls don't have that effect. They don't have that problem. Testosterone really does transform them and they do look like smaller men, right? They don't have the same issue of the five o'clock shadow. And by the, t- and, and, and they're going to need a, you know, so, so we're using the rationale that would make, that might make sense for an adult transgender biological male, sorry, trans woman, but biological male. And we're imposing it. We're using it as a rationale for intervening in, in this, in the medical care of young girls. No, mm-hmm. no one points that out. It's crazy. They should not be guiding their medical treatment. Yeah. It's yeah, you're right. It's totally different. And I mean, do you think that I'm just asking for your opinion, I suppose. Um, but do you think that there are ever circumstances where it is appropriate to start a minor on transition? So I have never taken a position about that. I'm agnostic about it. Um, I don't, I didn't, you know, that was not the population I looked at. And I just, I think that's a very complicated issue that you would have to go into the homes. I'd have to know a lot more about the homes and the condition of true childhood gender dysphoria, which is a classic Mm -hmm. diagnosis. It's been around for a long time and there's a lot of literature on it. And I do think it exists and whether that's the proper intervention for some number of kids, I don't know. So that's not something I've ever taken a position on. I'm only looking at, you know, these adolescent girls who don't seem to have real gender dysphoria at all and whether they're getting, whether, why they don't have any safeguards and whether they're getting the care they need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I listened to your interview on Rogan and he does this kind of, you know, there's real transgender and there's fake transgender. And so I I get the impression he thinks that, you know, like if there was such a thing as like a way to determine who is really trans and who's not, you know, maybe it's okay to start them on transition, which is, I mean, I disagree with the, the concept of transgender itself. I think it's like too incoherent to be able to have any kind of conversation like that to determine who is real trans and who's not. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, 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 that it's very, you know, the, the language here is so confusing. Sometimes it's deliberately so, mm-hmm. right? And and it, it is hard because what you're saying is if you could know with, I mean, given that most of these kids will outgrow gender dysphoria, it's, I don't know why you would intervene personally in general. As a general matter, it would seem that given that the vast majority of these kids, you know, upwards of 70 percent, sometimes some studies say upwards of 80 percent will outgrow it on their own if left alone. To me, that would seem roll the dice. Don't do anything um, would seem a really safe bet. Um, but but I've never said no child should ever be, you know, transitioned because I just I feel like I would have to uh, you know, know, know a lot more about a childhood gender dysphoria. 
Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can maybe talk about some stories. You talk to a lot of girls, obviously. Um, Some stories that really stood out for you in terms of the research that you did for this book um, and these girls who were transitioning or detransitioning. Yeah, there's, there's a few, Um, I guess, you know, there's so many at this point, but I guess, um, well, certainly, um, you know, Desmond, the the woman who, you know, woke up with a hysterectomy and realized this whole thing had been a mistake. She had heard, she had started a course of testosterone at, um, I guess, 18 after being celebrated and convinced, you know, by a therapist, she agreed with the therapist, she came out as trans and everybody celebrated her and her testosterone caused her so much cramping and she ended up with a hysterectomy. She needed one and um, woke up devastated, realizing this had been the wrong path. Um, But, you know, there, there were so many of these and there were so many detransitioners. And, And since I wrote the book, there are so many women who've reached out to me who said, that's that was exactly my experience. Or I got I got one yesterday. Actually, I got a message yesterday from someone who said that she had just met up. She was a lesbian and she had met up with an old girlfriend who was very troubled. I guess she had been her girlfriend in high school and had a lot of mental health issues. And she hadn't seen her in a while and then reconnected with her after this young woman had transitioned. And she just said she was such a confused person and suffering with so many things And I can't believe, you know, before she sorted out her mental health issues that any psychologist would have pushed her down this path or encouraged her down this path while she still had so many mental health problems. And, and the young woman was kind of devastated for her and for her friend. And, you know, those kinds of things are really sad to read, you know? I, I mean, I've been asked by several people, you know, because as you know, parents are struggling so much with their kids, with their girls in particular, coming to them and saying, I want to transition. And they don't know what to do because it seems like everybody's kind of on board with this. And so they're looking for, you know, I've been asked, like, do you know of any therapists or psychologists who won't push her down this path, who won't Um, you know, support the transition, who will sort of challenge her on this. I don't even know if you're allowed to challenge kids on this anymore. Did you come across any therapists or psychologists who were pushing back? Yes. And I recommend parents to them, but I will tell you that just yesterday I got a note from a physician who said that um, in Virginia, because of conversion therapy laws and the rules there, it's become impossible for doctors to do anything but immediately infirm because they're really afraid they're going to lose their licenses. This is a real problem. I just, the, the, the suppression of speech in America and that, you know, and that's what it is. It's speech. When you're, when you're not entitled to give your professional opinion, which is hold on, you're 14. Okay. Let's, let's do a differential diagnosis and figure out really what your, your medical problems are, as opposed to rubber stamping, you're really, you know, taking away their whole a doctor's ability to exercise their judgment. Yeah, totally. I, who, are there people that you recommend that you can say publicly or no? For sure, sure. I always recommend, you know, for sure, um, obviously Ken Zucker, Sasha Yad. There's so many that I really, you know, respect very much. Um, Stella O'Malley in, in Ireland is wonderful. Um, I know Lisa Marciano, who's, who's, who's absolutely wonderful. Um, she, she mainly works with the parents. Um, I think, you know, she doesn't see adolescents, but she talks to parents. 
Um, um, but, you know, are, are there a lot of them? No, unfortunately, there aren't. I mean, they're, it's funny. I once got a call from a therapist who said to me, you know, I was trying to interview her because I, I, sorry, I, I reached out to her, actually. I was reaching out to lots and lots of gender therapists at the time and uh, for my book. And um, I reached out to her and I thought she was someone who sort of from her description of her job or, or herself on her website, I thought she was, it said she was affirmative care and blah, blah, blah. Well, as I interviewed her, I realized she wasn't comfortable with this at all and didn't agree with it, but she wasn't able to advertise herself that way. So when I asked her any questions about this, it clearly was not that she agreed with it. Um, so, I mean, these, these therapists feel so hemmed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ter- I Yeah, it would be really a tough position to be in. Um I wonder if you had any trouble finding a publisher for the book. So I did. Um, I definitely did. People ask me about it all, all the time. Um, it's, it's so funny. People don't realize that, yeah, it, it was hard. I mean, when I started out with this, um, I, I wrote a, I wrote a proposal and um, within the first 24 hours, I had immediate interest. I think my, publisher, my agent had just sent out my proposal and it was a big publishing agency. And that was a really big deal for me. It was a a first book. So I was so happy. I I talked to the head of the publishing agency right away and I just thought, oh my God, I can't believe they're so excited. He had read something about the phenomenon and he knew he was familiar with it. And he said, I really like this idea. I think your treatment is very fair um, from what I've read because you have to submit a whole proposal. So he had a sense of the book he said, this seems to be a very fair treatment and I, I, I want to do this. I'll, I'll call your agent. We talked for over an hour and I waited and I didn't get an offer and didn't get an offer. And two days later, my agent called me and said his staff had threatened to walk out. I said, absolutely not. And then that that sort of repeated itself um, with, with other agencies. Um, now, I ended up with a conservative publisher who right away said that they would stand by me. They were interested in the issue. And I had seen that they had stood by other very controversial um, authors before. I actually don't consider myself a controversial author. I'm not a provocateur. I don't like fighting with people. Um, I actually, part of the reason I wrote this is because I think in 10 years, this is going to be the most non-controversial thing. It's just going to be so obvious to everyone. But right now it happens to fall into this weird time where it counts as controversial. Yeah, totally. Um, I also don't understand the controversy, especially, you know, you're not sharing your opinions, you're sharing stories and information and data. Like, I, and I guess they tried to cancel Rogan just for talking to you. They tried to cancel Rogan. Well, they, they have a sense that they can't, right? So there was a huge blackout on my book, a huge media blackout, meaning, I, you know, I had a lot of journalists, top journalists write to me and ask for advanced copies. And that didn't mean they were going to like the book. I'm not saying they all love my book. I have no idea. But they requested advanced copies and they were determined to explore the issue and write about it. Okay, maybe they wouldn't, wouldn't have liked the book. I don't know, because they never got to write about it. And so I checked in with them after my book came out. I was waiting and waiting and just waiting for some mainstream, you know, reviews. I thought I was going to get a review and nothing came. So kind of sheepishly, I got back in touch, like, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I hate to ask, but you, I guess you didn't like the book. Or, And they each told me, no, we were told we couldn't review it. 
And Kirkus, which is, of course, you know, a pro forma review, they review 10,000 titles a year. Kirkus reviews unpublished books, uh, sorry, uh, uh, you know, self-published books, 10,000 titles a year. They wouldn't, they didn't review mine. That's nuts. <laughs> um, why, like, why, why do you think this is so controversial right now? Like, why do you think that we're not allowed to talk about this? You know, we're not, you know, you're not allowed to publish research about it. Like, as we've witnessed um, in terms of what happened to Lisa Littman, for example. Because every time they get someone fired from the New York Times, like a top editor, like James Bennett, they claim a victory. And they say, Wow. And if we can get people to say men or women, we can do anything. I think that's part of it. It's this amazing gaslighting. They can say up is down. I mean, they can say they can force you to say men or women. And every time we hand them a victory, they get stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what has the response been like aside from the the silence and the media blackouts. (laughs) You know what? Thank God. It's been great. I'm really touched. Parents really like the book. People really like the book. Transgender adults really like the book. I've had so many interesting conversations with trans adults and they are a lovely, you know, by the large, you know, by the vast majority of transgender adults I've ever talked to are just such lovely people. And we've had the most interesting conversations and they can handle it. And it's always respectful. And it's always interesting. And very often they agree with me or they really like the book. And they're not afraid of it. These aren't fragile. You're not fragile. If you can go out there and present yourself as a woman for your life you're, you're, or, or, a, you know, or a man, you're, you're a tough person. And they can take it. It's really, it's really generational. It's these young, woke activists who are driving everything. And a lot of them aren't even trans. Yeah. Um. Finally, where do you see this going? Like, how do you see all this playing out? Is there an end in sight? And what will that look like? So everyone predicts, and I think this is right, that it will end with lawsuits in the United States, um, because we're so we're so into our lawsuits here. The problem is that while we're, we're really gung ho about lawsuits, we do seem to be less responsive to data. Our science has become so thoroughly corrupted. And I'm not sure it's as bad in places like England, where the Tavistock Clinic is doing a major review of whether these puberty blockers, I mean, they're really seriously considering in England outlawing puberty blockers based on data, based on what they're hearing. And in America, I don't see scientists taking this seriously, that there is a lot of indication that this is not helping this population. And I don't, I don't see open inquiry about that in America yet. So I think this, this, this phenomenon is just getting going, especially because I'm seeing huge numbers in middle school. And mm-hmm. I do think it's going to be a little while before this, this, this uh, really dangerous uh, trend finally reverses. That's unfortunate. Um, but I mean, I'm glad that we're having the conversations and I'm really grateful that you did all this research and that you pu- published this book. I think it's really important. Um, just, Thank you. You know, I have to tell you something. Your, your, your example is so meaningful. I can't tell you. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time and it's, it's wonderful to be in touch with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's so great to be in touch with you. Um, I'm so glad that we talked. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, of course. Thanks for having and, me on and for your work. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Take care. I'm Megan Murphy, host of the same drugs. Thank you for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.